What's up? What's up, Trinity Church? Good to see y'all. Good to be back. Y'all doing all right? A few of you have not met yet. My name is Jeff. I'm the lead pastor here at the Transit. We're glad to have you with us. If you're joining us online, we say, hey, happy Sunday to you. Glad that you are worshiping with us. Uh, obviously, I've been gone for a little bit. Part of that was uh, vacation, just being with the family as our kids have gone back to school. But part of it, actually, I had dental surgery. So uh, if you know what implant surgery is like, I had that the first two weeks of of my absence. And so when you have dental uh, implant surgery, they give you a device that they stick in your mouth and you have to wear it for four months. And so if it sounds like I'm talking a little bit differently, I am. In fact, that those time, the time off uh, was to recalibrate how I talk. And uh, for me, it feels like I'm talking with a mouth guard in my mouth. For those of you uh, who have played a sport with a, with a mouth guard in, uh, and so if I say a few words that don't sound quite right, it's not just me being me, it's me with a mouth guard in my mouth. All right, so uh, we have been in a series in First Peter, and uh, today we're going to take a little bit of a break from that. Before I get to that, I want to thank Nick and the team for uh, just holding down the fort for the last month or so. For uh, standing in the, the pulpit and bringing God's word, and you know, I mean, you can't even run any church without a host of people that serve uh, um, God as they serve you. And so I want to thank all of our leaders and uh, just for doing what you all do best, for, uh, for, making, uh, for making our place welcome. And, and hopefully those of you who are, who are recently joining us, you do feel welcome. So happy Sunday to you. We're going to be in Micah chapter 6, verse 8 today. Now, this has been another hard week for us in America, hadn't it? Uh, on top of heart weeks, I mean, global pandemic, racial tensions, uh, an election year, all the rhetoric that goes along with that. And then again, we have another incident, uh, an altercation involving a uh, police shooting of a black man. And, um, you know, we've seen it before. Um, the, the aftermath of this particular incident is, is what has caught most of our Alarm immediately following the shooting of, of Jacob Blake in specifics. Uh, two interrelated debates have emerged on news outlets and social media, and those debates are specifically whether the shooting was justified and whether the resulting outrage, the looting, the protesting, um, the, the rage has been justified. And so you can, you can exhale <gasps> because Jeff is not going to preach about Jacob Blake particularly this morning. But every once in a while, I do think God intends for us to just pause, to pause and get his perspective. And so Nick and I were talking this week and you know what? We felt like it would be impossible for us, for he or I to come in this morning and to bring you first Peter that says, slaves submit to your masters. It just didn't feel right. And so for that reason, I'm here and I'm going to be talking about justice. As we talk about justice, my aim for us uh, it's not that we would take different sides and that a particular side would win, but more importantly, that instead of judging the actions on the ground and, tw- and quickly taking a side, that we would spend some time talking about what it means for us, the body of Christ, Christians in the church, to do justice. To do justice. And the scripture that I'm taking that from is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. You have heard this scripture talked about recently. Actually, me and Nick both mentioned Micah 6, 8 in, um, in uh, sermons that we preached maybe two or three months ago. I think this was in regards to the, the George Floyd uh, incident. And here's what Micah 6, 8 says. You can read this along with me. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Did you all read with me? I didn't hear you. Y'all got the, you got the scripture verses? Did something happen back there? Okay. Somebody put Micah 6, 8 on the screen. <laughs> all right, read these verses along with me. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you for a Sunday. 
Thank you for any day that we get to wake up and that your sun shines a reminders of your grace to us. And so we receive both grace and new mercies for today. Lord, our hearts are, in fact, we come in with different dispositions. Some come in with a joyful heart. Some come in with the weight of the world on their shoulders with just wanting it to be lifted. Some of us come in just needing to hear a word from you. And I pray, God, that uh, uh, that you would do that. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you comfort those who need to be comforted? Would you mourn with those who, uh, who, who mourn? Lord, would you uh, bring joy to those who are in the doldrums of life and in all the ways that we're anxious and that we worry about how we're going to get on with the lives that you've given us here on this earth, Lord God. We know that the solution is always in you. And so enlighten us by your word this morning. God, our, our, our ears are attentive. Would you cause our eyes to see what you want us to see? More importantly, would you cause our hearts to receive uh, the word that is for us? And we pray this in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So when we look at Micah 6, 8, in context, the foundation of Micah's Words come from the story of a people, the Israelite people, God's people, who had some of the outward trappings of religiosity. Uh, These were God's people, so he had given them his laws, laws to govern themselves by. They had uh, been welcomed into a covenant whereby uh, God promised to be their God, and he made them his people, and as long as they were obedient to him, then, uh, then God would bless them. Not only bless them, he would bless the nations around them. And so what happens in the history of Israel is obviously they renege on God's covenant. They disobey his laws. More uh, particularly to what we're talking about today, they turn a blind eye to many of the injustices taking place around them. There's this group of marginalized people that they just... Uh, uh, dismiss altogether. And Amos calls that, uh, uh, Micah calls that out. But it's not just Micah that calls stuff like this out. In fact, we find this probably, this is the same problem in all the prophets. One in particular is Amos. Amos prophesied a hundred years earlier than Micah. Micah actually prophesied to Judah, the southern kingdom. Amos prophesied to the northern kingdom. And he says in Amos 5, verse 21, I hate I despise your feasts, speaking of the northern kingdom of Israel. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of the harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters." and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We've heard those words before, particularly uh, the, the words of verse 24. It's a, it's a word picture. It's a metaphor. If, if justice could roll like water rolls, if you're standing on a decline and you have water in a bucket and you pour that water out, that water is going to flow down to whatever is the, the lowest point that it can reach. And so Amos is saying, if justice could roll, then let it roll all the way down to those that need it most, right? Those who are marginalized in our society. More recently, Martin Luther King Jr. invoked this same phrase, let justice roll down like water, in one of his most famous works, his letters from the Birmingham jail that he published in 1963. And his words became the rallying cry for a movement of justice. You know this as the civil rights Movement, a movement not just for justice, but for equity for all peoples of color in terms of education and housing and employment and, of course, uh, in, in uh, crimes and stuff like that. They wanted, people just wanted to be treated fairly. Uh, today and over the last few months, this same, a similar type of civil rights movement has resurrected under the banner of the Black Lives Movement in response to the surge and what many call systemic racism against black people. Of course, that has a focus on the violent police actions against black men. Now, I mean, today, we can actually rejoice, right? We can rejoice that Dr. King's dream has come true. Live today, it's not like it was in the 1960s. Amen? Right? In fact, 
I stand before you probably as a product of Dr. King's dream. If we look at my kids and how they govern their lives in the United States of America, my kids don't even live the, the, the life that I live. That they're, they're free to do most of the things that they want to do. Whatever their minds can, and minds and skill and opportunities are uh, presented to them. Life today is not like it was in the 1960s. At the same time, as a people, we do have to lament a little bit. And here's why. It's because some of the parts of Dr. King's dream are still only that. They're still only a dream. And so the quick and easy answer as to why all Christians must seek and do justice is because God tells us to do so. Isn't that right, parents? Don't you just want sometimes it's just like, well, daddy or mommy, why? Why can't I do this? Why is that the way it is? And you just want to say, well, because I said so. And this is one of those instances where God tells us to seek and do justice because he commands us to do it. That's the charge of Micah 6 8. Micah's words to Israel to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God are God's command to us because it's God's standard of conduct for us, for its people. And interestingly, these words don't go away in the advent of the New Testament. And here's why it's because, uh, because God is just. God is just from cover to cover in our Bible. God is just from the, I mean, from his, his, his entire existence. And Jesus, Jesus models that. When Jesus hits the scene, he goes to a synagogue and his very first sermon, he preaches words of uh, defense and help to those who are marginalized in our, in, our, in our society. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying, I have come to those who in your society in this day, his day, first century, are marginalized. And Jesus, the Bible says, is the same yesterday, yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus has always been and he always will expect his people, his special creation, uh, the special creation of man as his image bears, that we're all marked by sin to seek and do justice. And so the foundations of justice is an understanding of our creator God's holy and just nature, of his sovereignty over all. Justice is God's standard for conduct that we glean from the scriptures. If I were to give you a, a simple definition of justice, here it is. Justice means giving every person what they are due, impartially, fairly, equitably. Overwhelmingly in your Bibles, there's a quartet of individuals who are mentioned overwhelmingly in connection with doing justice. They are widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Over 2,350 times in your Bible, there are verses that talk about God's heart for widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor, marginalized people. And, and here's the truth. You know this. They're present in every family. They're present in every neighborhood. They're present in every community. We could say they're present in every city, every country, all over the world. The brunt of injustice was and is often borne by individuals in these groups. And if we're honest, in many ways, not much has changed from the Bible days into the day. Those, those marginalized groups still exist. And perhaps part of the reason why they're mar uh, marginalized is because of how polarized our society is, how polarized the church is as to exactly what should we do about it, if anything. The culture that we live in, and sadly the church has made these same mistakes of following suit with the culture around us, is, is, is where prejudice and injustices are often still directed towards those who are considered the others. And there's not a person in here, there's not a person online that doesn't have some subset of the society around us that, that aren't considered other. And so who are the others? The others are oftentimes people who don't look like you. Others are oftentimes people who don't and have not shared your experiences. Others are those who are socio, whose socioeconomic condition is a little bit lower than that of the middle class American. And that's just in America. 
Because if you've been outside of America, you know that in many parts of the world, injustices are far worse. In sub-Saharan Africa right now, there's 11 million AIDS orphans who are just left alone to, to fend for themselves. In many countries, particularly in Asia, when a woman's husband dies, that new widow who, um, who needs the care of the people and the community around her bears the shame and the blame for her husband's death, and it's often ostracized from that very community that should be taking care of her. Human tra trafficking is, is rampant all over the world, including here in certain hotspots in the United States of America. And so these are gargantuan level issues of injustice in our society, ones that need not just human creativity and sympathy, but we need the intervention of an almighty God. The good news is that the Bible tells us that, he, that, that God has a solution. The Bible tells us that there is good news for those who are marginalized individuals and groups in our world today. And that's the gospel. The gospel promises forgiveness of sin, reconciliation with the holy God, acceptance into the beloved. And so regardless of what your color is, what your creed is, what your socioeconomic condition is, the gospel provides you hope. You're not alone. The gospel is for the oppressed of all types. God is for the forgotten, the beaten down, the shut out, and the left behind. Today, I'm not actually going to talk about that part of the gospel. I'm not going to, we can never set aside the proclamation of the gospel. The question for us today that I think is, is, is pertinent for us, given the, the current moment that we're in, is what should the people of God actually do to take up the cause of the marginalized in our society? What should the people of God do? I want to introduce you to two Hebrew words today. And that's going to, so I'm going to theologize for a few minutes, and then we're going to just talk some practical things about doing justice uh, here's the bad part about me giving you two Hebrew words. I didn't study Hebrew in seminary, right? So I'm going to jack these words up, but I'm going to put them on the screen and you're going to see what they are. And then afterwards, you can either go ask Nick or look them up on Wikipedia and they will tell you not what it means, but how to pronounce it. All right. So I'm going to try my best, but here it goes. All right. The first of those words is, is mishpat. Mishpat. Mishpat is really a complex word. It, it has to do with a lot, and I'm going to unpack a little bit of what it means, but it really refers to what we might call as rectifying justice. Rectifying justice, I would define as, uh, in part, it's the things that a just government does. So if a government is being just uh, towards its citizens, Mishpat is what it does. It, it's it's uh, executing, rectifying justice. Actually, Nick talked about this last week in 1 Peter 2. Right. It says that citizens should be subject to governing authorities because those governing authorities are put there by God. God instituted governments on the earth as a means to a just society. Right. To, to, not just to keep us in intact, but ju a, a just society needs just government. And so some of the things that rectifying justice includes would be equity before the law. Equity before the law. And this involves ensuring that genuine fairness and regardless, uh, uh, genuine fairness happens regardless of your status. It means that uh, you can be acquitted or you might be punished on the merits of your case, regardless of your race, your social situation, or any other status that you have. Equity before the law. Another thing that rectifying justice, mishpat means, is deterrence. And this is the, the idea of restraining evil, of providing real reasons for evildoers to think twice before committing crimes in the first place. Guess what? This is why we have local police departments. I'm not trying to put us, I'm not trying to talk about anything political here. De deterrence is part of rectifying justice. A just government has to restrain evil. OK, and if I can throw in one editorial note, whether you are for or against police reform. The thing to understand from a theological perspective is the Bible assumes the desperately sinful fallen heart of humanity. Right. Humans sin and therefore there will always be a need for police forces. And so rectifying justice is one of the big reasons why. Why? The presence of law enforcement is a deterrent to those that would do evil. 
Rectifying justice also includes retributive justice. Retributive justice uh, includes uh, or involves the punishment of those who break our laws. There are some crimes committed in our society that justify incarceration. That's a part of rectifying justice. It also includes restorative justice. Restorative justice involves bringing wholeness to those who are victims of crimes. It also involves bringing, restoring wholeness to those who have committed a crime. If you uh, have heard of Prison Fellowship, uh, an organization started by the late Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson actually uh, was a part of the Nixon administration. He was convicted after Watergate, right? And he did some time in prison. He got out and he started the Prison Fellowship. And here's what Prison Fellowship does. They, they do a lot of good partnering with law enforcement and prison officials to, re, uh, to bring restorative justice to those who have been incarcerated. All that's a mishpat, uh, rectifying justice. In our polarized and politicized society, here's what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to take sides. You, you got one side that focuses on we need to punish evildoers, and on the other side, you got those that, 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 that emphasize lifting up those who suffer injustice. And guess what the Bible does? The Bible tells us that we need to do both, that both of these are required because this is what rectifying justice, this is what what a right and just government does. Psalm 72, verse two and four says, may the king judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Do you see what the psalmist is doing? He's saying we need two things to happen in our, in our society because we have the sinfulness of humanity that's, uh, that's going to be the backdrop of everything that happens in the world. First, we need, to, we need to ensure that we're taking care of the needy and the poor, doing all the things that we can to make sure that they are taken care of. And when the needy and the poor are oppressed, we need to crush the oppressor. Those are, aren't trite words. Here's my point in regards to this. As followers of Jesus, we, we want just judgment to be handed down and oppressors to be punished. We should always want we should always uh, we should also want the cause of any group who are marginalized, the needy and the poor to be defended, widows and orphans to be cared for, immigrants, sojourners amongst us to be given a home. And this, this is what I would add. I'm not adding to the Bible, but I think this is a this is an offshoot of what uh, the, the prophets are talking about. Those experiencing racial injustices to be delivered from whatever impress, uh, oppression they might be experiencing. And so Mishpat, rectifying justice, has to do with things that a just government might do. But guess what? That doesn't mean that you and I don't have an, indiv- uh, in, an individual uh, responsibility in bringing about rectifying justice. And, and probably primary among that is the privilege that we have as Americans uh, to, to register to and then go vote. And so, I mean, th- th- that's a... a an immense privilege that you have that some people in other countries do not have. And so one of the ways that we ensure our society stays just is by simply exercising our right to vote. Well, who do you vote for? I, I, I can't tell you that. Vote your conscience. Do a little research. Vote those people that share your values. But what you want to do in terms of rectifying justice, Mishpat, is ensure that you're voting for people that are going to take care of those who are marginalized, but also crush the oppressor. Go vote. One other way that we promote justice, particularly rectifying justice, is that we make our voices heard. Now, I'm a user of social media. Many of you are. Uh, I love social media because social media gives everybody who thinks they deserve a voice a chance to speak up. I love social media, but guess what? I also hate social media. <laughs> and I hate social media because it gives everybody that, that thinks they deserve a voice an opportunity to speak up. And so I don't know about your Twitter and your Facebook feed, but here's what mine looks like. It, it, like, like every stripe of, of person 
imaginable is on there. Uh, religious, ethnic, political, you name it. And when you get that mixture of people from like all of your upbringing, from like neighborhood to high school to army to college to seminary and pastor stuff, it's a mixture of ugliness and ignorance. Right? Because everybody who thinks they deserve to have their voices heard are just spouting out whatever they think uh, is true from their own perspective. And so, um, you know, again, social media is a is a great tool for us. And so if you're one of those that uses social media, I would say one of the ways that we participate in rectifying justice is is we speak the truth in love. And actually, when we speak the truth in love, sometimes it requires us to make injustices known. Sometimes we get to speak truth to power. If you can stomach social media, it's a great tool for for to use your voice to promote rectifying justice. Mishpat. Sometimes injustice can come embedded in our societal systems. We ascribe to what the Bible calls total depravity. The Bible doesn't call it that. Theologians call it that. Basically, what it's saying is there's nothing in. Uh, we're not as bad as we could be. Evil exists because sin is, exists in the world. We're not, at, uh, but there's nothing in us that merits God's favor, right? That's why we need Jesus. We need Jesus to forgive us and purify us. Because, uh, because uh, humans are the, the developers of structures and systems on the earth, it makes sense that a fallen humanity would sometimes have systems that are flawed, that don't achieve the goals for which they actually were started. Sometimes, on purpose, those systems are flawed, such that they work against uh, people that they could, they could easily help. Sometimes they're flawed because we just don't see what we don't see. And that can be the case, not just uh, in our world, but it can be the case in the Bible. In Acts chapter 6, we have this occasion of uh, this subset of the Jews who had come to faith. The Bible says Greek-speaking Jewish widows weren't being treated fairly. These, these women had come to faith, and like other widows, the church had taken responsibility to what? To take care of them because they were a part of the poor and the needy population of people that they had to sort of wrap their arms around and love. And so these Greek-speaking Jewish women uh, came to the apostles. They held their hands up and said, hey, we're being overlooked. You got those widows over there that you're doing all this kinds of stuff for, and we're, I mean, nothing is happening for us. And so here are the apostles. The Bible says that they weren't, they weren't being apathetic. They weren't necessarily trying to uh, bring about injustice in regards to caring for these widows. They were just going about their own task. What was their task? Shepherding the people, trying to help the fledgling, burgeoning church, the early church in Jerusalem, grow. And so when these widows bring up this, this incident, this, 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 these opportunities of, of neglect and oversight to the apostles, the apostles actually um, responded. What did they do? They, they uh, from their group, they rose up seven, uh, they appointed seven people who end up being the first deacons. And these deacons end up being the ones that they task with serving, not just these Greek speaking Jewish widows, but, but even other things, uh, other parts of the church that the apostles, because of their duties, reading the scriptures and, and, and shepherding the flock, could not attend to. So that happens, right? That happens then and it happens now. Without waiting too much into the, the, the contentious topics of, of where and to what degree the systems that exist today that we may be unaware of or apathetic about or that the system, had, the system has flaws in it such that it doesn't take care of people either purpose, purposefully or just because it's, we're unaware of it. Uh, that stuff happens. Where does it happen? It happens in education. What does it happen? It happens in housing. What does it happen? It happens in our crime system. It, 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 it obviously happens uh, in regards to uh, jobs and race. It happens. My argument for us is that as believers who care about justice, we should want to listen and learn from those who believe themselves to be on the short end of the stick. Much as the leaders in the early church 
responding to the, the cry of these, these Hellenistic Jewish widows did. The Jerusalem elders were engaging in rectifying justice. Mishpat. All right, that's the first word. Here's the second word. We don't spend a lot of time on this one because I can't even pronounce this one. Right? The second Hebrew word that relates closely to this idea of biblical justice is, is uh, Tazdeka. I'm probably saying that wrong. Nick, how do you say that? Tazdeka. It's, it's Tazdeka. There you go. But more than just how to pronounce it, the, the, the pertinent thing I want you to get out of this is the definition. It refers to living in right relationships both with God and with other people. Living in right relationships both with God and with other people. That should sound familiar, right? We've heard of this. Jesus models this in the great commandment. He says, what does he say? He says, love God with all you got. And then he adds something to it. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so Tazdika is what might be termed primary justice because it's that kind of living that if prevalent in the world, if we were loving God with all that we have and loving our neighbor as ourselves, it would render mishpat, rectifying justice, unnecessary, right? If you and I woke up every morning and we tried to be just in such a way that we, we were honoring God because of who he is, but also uh, extending um, our love for God to those around us, it would actually uh, allow the government to, to lead us without such a heavy hand. Amen to that? It's true. It's daily living and acting out just uh, justly towards other people. And so here's what I'm getting at with all of this. Th- these, these two words, these two ideas are, are uh, this is what the Bible calls biblical, uh, the biblical idea of justice. And so these two words, uh, mispat, testica, uh, are mentioned over 200 times. We're told that these two words are pictures of the justice that God requires. Now, fast forward. Isaiah addressed almost all the, the same issues that Micah and Amos does. A people who look religious on the outside, but who aren't content to propagate, defend, and benefit from injustice. In other words, they've had this mandate, all right? Uh, honor God with your lives, but also there's a subset uh, amongst you that you especially need to take care of, and they weren't doing that. And Isaiah 1, the prophet issues a scathing rebuke to Israel for all the abuses, all the ways that they have listened to God's command and just dismissed it, all the ways that they have just pushed aside um, God's, uh, God's mandate to them to take care of the marginalized. And here's what happens. Pretty much in language identical to what we read in er, uh, Amos earlier, Isaiah voices God's attitude towards their worship. And it's not pretty. He basically says, God is utterly sick and tired of you because of the way that you're acting. And so in Isaiah 1, verse 16 and 17, we see kind of the solution that God has for his people. He says, wash yourself, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds before, from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. I want to take verse 17 and sort of unpack that, but I want to take key verses of that and challenge us today as specifically what it might mean for us to do justice. And the first thing that Isaiah suggests to the nation of Israel that I think applies to us is learn. Verse 17, he says, learn. And so our posture towards justice is, in some cases, we just need to learn, right? I mean, we should be a learning people. Paul says to uh, the church at Rome, he writes that one of the ways that we honor God is that we, you know, we, we live a sacrificial life towards him and that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. One of the ways that we can sort of say that is that New Testament, New Testament scripture encourages us to calibrate our consciousness, not to what the secular society says, not even to what we think of our, our, ourselves, but to, to calibrate our consciousness to God's word. And so let's ask this question. What would it mean for us to learn what the Bible says regarding the importance of justice? What would it mean for us to learn what the Bible says about the definition of justice, about the pursuit of justice? You've heard of Rosa Parks. December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks had gotten off work. 
It's a long day. She was tired. And in her day in Montgomery, Alabama, um, black folk typically uh, did all they could not to ride the bus. Why? Because when you rode the bus as a black person in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, there was a municipal law that required blacks to sit in the back. It was demeaning. But on this particular day, Rosa Parks was tired. She needed to get home. She took the bus and she sat down. The bus was filling up. James Blake was the bus driver. And James Blake was just doing what he was tasked to do drive the bus and make sure the law was, was followed. And so as the bus was filling up, a white man came. There's only one seat left. Rosa Parks was a black woman sitting in the wrong place. And the bus driver came to Rosa and says, hey, you know the law. You can't be sitting there. Get up. What happened? Well, it, it, was, it was like a, the spark that started the civil rights movement, right? Rosa Parks had had enough. She had had enough of a an actual local government law that, um, that discriminated on her and people like her because of how she looked, because of the color of her skin. The bus driver basically, his, his defense was, look, lady, I'm just doing my job. But unfortunately, his, his, his job, as dictated by the law, included systemic discrimination. It included systemic discrimination. Maybe you've heard of black codes. Black codes were local laws implemented during the, uh, the, the late 60s, the late 1800s, 1865, 1866, on the heels of the civil, right, uh, civil, civil war, the American Civil War. And these laws were intended to keep uh, former slaves in, in low-income jobs so that they would always be kind of like the slaves of society. Perhaps you've heard of redlining. Redlining uh, were laws put in place in local communities, actually this, these were some, some, some national movement in regards to this, that, um, that forbid uh, blacks, even, even GIs coming from, from war that had the means to buy certain houses in certain uh, neighborhoods, it prevented them uh, from moving into to certain neighborhoods, primarily in the suburbs. These forms of systemic racism were widespread in our country in times past. Thankfully, at least on paper, these laws are outlawed now, right? We can, we can live where we want. Probably everybody in here um, has people like from like across the spectrum living near you, beside you, across from you. Hopefully, prayerfully, you are engaging with those people. But those systems actually still exist. Does, 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 the, does a lack of law or laws that override stuff that happened um, a couple hundred years ago mean that there's not ongoing discrimination in our society today? If you look at the news, if you read the paper, if you look at social media, the current movement of racial tension suggests no. There, there are some things still going on. And, and here's my point again. If we're the people of God, charged to let justice roll down like waters, should we not want to learn rather than assume? And if we learn about injustice, we have the opportunity to play our part in correcting it so that people made in the image of God are treated with respect, dignity, and the fairness they deserve. Uh, it's a prominent pastor by the name of uh, K. Edward Copeland. He is a, a prominent black pastor in the Midwest. He's also a, gals, uh, a, a council member of the Gospel Coalition. He says this, and I quote, perhaps the biggest obstacle, obstacle in our pursuit of public justice is typified by the current tension between minority communities and law enforcement and based on a seldom acknowledged reality. We live next door to people who live in a different world. The great ethnic chasm in America isn't as much a divide as an existential disconnect. Black people and white people live in parallel universes. The divergence isn't clearly, uh, isn't clearly seen by the majority culture until crises erupt. Crises like right now. Only then are most brought face to face with the reality that they know nothing about how the other lives. Sadly for some, even then, the other never becomes significant. Those are crushing words. They're crushing words to our good intentions to know who people are. 
without really getting to know who they are. And unfortunately, that exists all around us. It exists in our church, that we have people who may not look like us, may not have our same experience, may think like us, act differently than us. And they can be right beside us, and we think they know them, but we don't. Copeland goes on to say, those of us who want to, for, uh, to move forward can develop hearts for doing justice by taking some practical steps. And then he just, this is a blog post. On the, you can find it on the Gospel Coalition website. Uh, he lists several practical suggestions. I'm just going to give you two. He suggests first, spending time listening in Samaria. Listening in Samaria. He's taking that from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The, the way that God scatters us around as, as witnesses to Jerusalem, uh, Judea, and the uttermost parts of Samaria. And uh, Copeland uniquely defines Samaria as the place where you live, work, worship, where people are languishing in proximity to, to abundance, rejoicing despite pain, pov- uh, perishing in the face of harsh economic and education realities, and aching for someone to listen. Other, I mean, I didn't say those words very clearly. I got a mouth guard in my mouth. But, but I mean, this cuts us, it cuts me to the chase. And here's why this is important for us. It's because in our church, and you know, we, we, had a, uh, we have a modicum of diversity in our church, and we can make the mistake of thinking because someone is here with us that they believe exactly like we do, that they vote the same, that they eat the same, that they speak the same, that what I think they think, that what I support they support, and that is far from the truth. And when we trivialize people to think that because they're here with us, what it does is it, it minimizes, even dismisses uh, the very diversity that God wants to bring amongst us. Here's the second thing that that Reverend Copeland says. He says, many Christians will travel across time zones, international borders, and vast oceans to serve others, but will never go to the next zip code, across the tracks, or beyond the bridge. Let me pause right there. Fans of church, we don't have to go to another zip code, across the track, or even beyond the bridge. You can immerse yourself into really a, a... all kinds of different cultures right here in our church, if you want to. He says, this effort, doesn't, uh, this effort doesn't need to be evangelistic. It can be as simple as listening to fellow believers who don't get their news from your favorite channel or who disagree with your politics. As you listen to the narrative of the other near you, you'll discover that some people in your community might as well live on a different planet in terms of how they're experiencing life I mean, like in the same city and town that you live in. I would tell you, because there's, you know, we're a diverse church, but we are a majority white church. The people of color who come to our church choose to be here. And oftentimes when they come here, they're coming here as missionaries, even with a black pastor. They're coming with, they're coming with the intention to, um, to, to want to honor God and be the beautiful community, as my seminary professor Erwin Entz calls, uh, the tapestry of what God, what God wants to see in his church. A beautiful community. A beautiful community that, that mimics what we see in the beautiful, beautiful community, community of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Right? In fact, we can't even be the community God wants us to be when it's all homogenous. We, we never get at the, the community that God wants us to be. And when people of color come to an area where there's this majority, one, one culture, don't think they don't want to be there. They're there, but they're there. And when they're there, oftentimes they give up a part of who they are, even in our church. Don't take that lightly. Here's the, here's the other thing I think, and this is different than what uh, the, the right reverend would say here, but my question for us is, who, who else can we learn from? Can I suggest a couple other things? I think we need to learn from people who immigrate to this country. You know what? Right here in our church, we have people who were not born in the United States of America and have become citizens because their families immigrated here. In our church, we have people who aren't even citizens. They're green card Carers, wearers, however you, carers, right? Right? 
Wouldn't it be cool to learn what they think of your country? To see ourselves through their eyes? Maybe it would be good to try and understand what poverty is like if you don't know that. What our politics and our Christianity lack right now is, is empathy. I, I wish that Paul had added empathy as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Then I would have hope that, that God can give me the Holy Spirit and I can grow into it. But it's not. And empathy is, is this, Christ, this Christ-like behavior that we desperately need right now. We desperately need it for it to, to, to counter all the, the instances of, of, of racism and prejudice and injustice that we see in our land. All right, that's the first one. Learn. Here's the second one. Seek. I'll be quick. Bible scholar, one, one Bible scholar suggests that this word seeks, uh, seek involves setting new objectives and priorities. Paul says, in Philippians, says this in Philippians 2. He tells us that we should not look only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he, give, he give, goes on to give us the example of Jesus, whose humility was off the charts, right? Again, he's saying this is more than just a passive nodding of the head. It's, it's a determination to be a part of the solution, to do what's within our power to see that justice rolls down like a river, like, like water. The, the word seek isn't passive. We can't be uh, bystanders and, and actually seek like God in, encourages us to seek. We can't intolerate uh, indifference and seek how God wants us to seek justice. As justice-loving followers of Jesus, we're bound to pursue the just treatment of others. Our aim is that God, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it means to seek justice. Thirdly, defend. Who are we supposed to defend? Isaiah says we're supposed to defend the, the, the poor and the needy, right? The, the, the widows, take up for, for immigrants. And of course, this follows in line. We learn from, from those who are experiencing oppression. And if we learn from them rightly, we will want to come to their defense. We'll, we'll use our mouths and our written words and our time but maybe we'll even use our bodies. I was really moved by, uh, by Phil uh, Vischer's blog post uh, this, I think it was this weekend, maybe it was last week. You guys know who Phil Vischer is? He's the creator of VeggieTales. VeggieTales, veggies, all right? He's Bob the Tomato. He's also the creator of that whole series. And uh, his story is, is amazing. All right, he lives in Wheaton, Illinois, which is like Christian Central. Like everything good comes out of Wheaton, Illinois. Wheaton College is there. And he goes to uh, a, a prominently white church. He says his dying white church uh, merged with a, uh, a growing Asian church and uh, a miracle happened. They started growing. Not only did they started growing, but this merger of a church uh, started attracting other people of other colors. And so they like they're all mixed up now. Right. And it's a beautiful thing. And he says he's gotten to know people from different cultures. He's gotten to know people of color for the first time in however many years of life he's lived. And he says the closer he got, the more he was able to learn things about himself that he had presupposed about other people that were I mean, just wrong. Right. The closer he got to people who had not experienced the life that he lived, uh, made him want to learn more, seek, defend, uh, defend their cause. And so guess what he did? He protested. He went on a march on Friday. He protested uh, along with several people from his church, along with several people from, from his city, um, the, the shooting of, of Jacob Blake. And you can think what you want to think about that, but think about this man, how prominent he is. He's uh, he's jeopardizing his business of all the, this business to white evangelicals, so to speak, um, to go out there and defend the cause of people who can't defend for themselves. And I think we should be like that. We'll take our resources that God has given us. And when we see people being treated unjustly, what do we do? We defend them. Our common humanity and our common commitment to Christ will lead us to this. And lastly, Isaiah says that we should plead when we plead for someone we take up the cause when we take up the cause from someone is to go beyond playing defense. It's to work to stop the injustices that are happening to them in their tracks. It's taking up the cause of those who are oppressed because that's what Jesus does for us. Jesus takes up your cause. 
oppressed by sin and Satan as we all are. It's speaking up when you hear or see someone being mistreated as Jesus spoke up for uh, sin and oppressed you. When Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The wisdom of Proverbs says, speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Who are destitute? It's those who are marginalized in our, in our society. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the alien, the poor. Those in a society who are ostracized or receive injustices because of the way they look or the color of their skin. I was challenged by this. I was looking at a Netflix video with uh, Matt Chandler and Brian Loritz. I know them both, and they were talking about race in the church. And, uh, and, and Brian Loritz in particular said this. He says, you know what? The church thinks rightly about, uh, about abortion. We, we take up the cause of, of, uh, of the unborn child in the womb. And we should rightly do that because abortion is a crime. But here's, here's what he says. He says, anyone who is passionate about life inside the womb, but is apathetic to life outside the womb, it's not really pro-life. Perhaps you're pro-birth, but there is a unique hesitancy, he says, for Christians to advocate for life outside the womb, particularly when we think about the matters of race. And that was harsh. Right. Some of you are saying, ah, what do I do with that? That's kind of like, what do what, 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 what do you do? But here's what he's saying. He's saying he, he's not saying don't support abortion. Our church actually advocates for and supports uh, uh, an abortion uh, a, a clinic here who treats people uh, who come in thinking about abortion, trying to help them uh, preserve the sanctity of life. He's saying we can't jump on the anti-abortion bandwagon and not take up and plead the cause for the entire quartet of the oppressed in our society to include those who are oppressed or marginalized because of their race. And so where are we? Justice requires, Isaiah says, that we learn, that we seek, that we defend, that we take up and plead for those who can't do that for themselves. And lastly, and I'm going to finish with this, I think justice requires that we lament. That we lament. I read, over, uh, I read a book over the last couple couple months by Dr. Eric Mason, who pastors a church in Philadelphia called Woke Church. And and amongst a lot of things he talks about in the book, he talks about lament. He men- he mentions a lot of things that the church right now should lament about things going on in our society. One of these is pertinent to my conversation. The other is not. I'm going to mention them both. The first is simply this. He says that justice is not seen as a primary doctrine. In Matthew 23, we looked at this uh, scripture verse a couple months ago. Jesus is, is bringing woe to all the, to the, re- the religious leaders. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Jesus calls justice a weightier matter of the law. It's one of those things that's not going to go away. It has not gone away. He's not going to take it away. This means that Jesus expects his followers to do justice, to live all of life rightly based on his word. That for us in our day means that we can't be dismissive of racial injustice as well. Here's the second thing he laments. This has nothing to do with what I'm talking about right now. It's just on the outskirts. I just, I'm speaking, so I'm going to bring it up. He says he laments that the Black Lives Matter movement was not created by the church. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement was created off of a hashtag. 2016, uh, you know, another of several incidents happened with a, a person of color, a black man being shot by the police. And someone on social media hashtagged it Black Lives Matter. It was taken up by some people and they turned it into a movement. Now, if you go, with, go to the Internet and you look up Black Lives Matter movement as a person of faith, You're going to see they represent things that as a church we should not get behind. But but here's the thing. If you as a person of faith have a problem saying black lives matter, you have failed to understand who your God is. Because the God that you serve would tell you that black lives matter. Why do black lives matter? Because they're created in the image of God. They're created in his likeness. And there is no travesty. There is no crime in saying that black lives matter. And if you're 
not mature enough to hear me say Black Lives Matter and assume that I'm talking about the, the, the movement that supports things that the church doesn't speak, then, then shame on you because black lives matter. All right, I want to close with a lament. I was going to, you know, I printed these out. I was actually going to put them on a screen and have you read them with me. But I've said some stuff that I think, I don't think it's not biblical. I just think it's contentious. And I don't know where your heart is. I don't know where your heart is on the screen. And so we need to lament. I mean, lament. We talked about this a few months ago. Lament is you grieving the, the, the condition of your life or the con- condition of society and not being able to do anything about it. And so in the, in, the, in the Bible, the psalmist would lament when life wasn't going the way they wanted to. And the only emotion they could express was like, God, this is bad. And I can't do anything about it. And why aren't you doing anything about it? And what's going on in our country right now is just like that, isn't it? Like, don't we just want to like turn our backs like, Lord, just take this away. Well, guess what? We can do that. We can do that in lament. And it doesn't mean that God's going to snap his fingers three times and make it make all this stuff go away. You know, God's method of, 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 of taking this stuff away is you trusting in the spirit and you going and doing something about it. Those two things go hand in hand. But we need to lament. And so I'm going to pray us out with the lament, and then I'll invite the worship team to come on up, and, and we'll be done. Let's pray. Father, we trust you. We love you. And even as I say those words, Lord God, there's always parts of us that don't fully trust and fully love you. We don't trust you with what's going on in our country. Sometimes we don't trust you with our own lives. God, there's lots of emotion mixed up, uh, even, even with the words that I've said today. There's even more emotion mixed up in what's going on in our country. We, we all come from different backgrounds, and so we see life through many different lenses, and, and you want us to see life through the lens of Scripture. And so, Lord God, help us with that. Uh, in this moment, Lord, we want to we offer up a lament to all those things that are going on in our country that wish we could just, like, swipe left like an iPhone and delete it and start over. Honestly, I wish we could do that whole thing with all of 2020. But I think you want us to to, to sit in the discomfort of this for a little bit so that we gain your perspective and we lean less on our own understanding and lean more into into yours. And so, God, even as we call out to you for to to, to do uh, and make sense of those things that we can't ourselves, we pray that you, God of all comfort, would would be with Jacob Blake. Lord, we don't know this man. We don't even know the the intricacies of the incident involving him and why he got shot seven times by a police officer, why we were able to see that on national TV. But we know he's paralyzed now in, in a hospital, and that doesn't seem quite right. And so we pray that you heal his body from head to toe. God, that you make it so he can walk again. God, we pray that justice would be served. In, in Jacob Blake's life, but also in the life of the police officer, if, if justice is, is something that's deserved there. God, we pray that you be more so for those whom these tragedies have increased fear and anxiety because of their own traumatic experiences. And here I talk about people of color. I talk about black people who have lived through trauma after trauma from slavery until today and feel like an ostracized people in our own country. Lord, would you be with parents who worry about their sons, knowing that the color of their skin is seen as a threat to some people, some people around them? Father, we pray that you'd have mercy on us. Have mercy because our eyes are blinded sometimes. In spite of what many see as, as clear evidences of embedded racism around us, all of us don't see it that way. And because we've not seen it that way, we dismiss it, we're apathetic, but we just simply look the other way. God, only you can change a heart, only you can open eyes. Would you help us to see how many have died? Would you help us see how many have suffered? Would you help us to see how many have been locked out and cast aside? Would you help us to see the indignity? Would you help us to see the injustices? And would you help us not to look the other way? God, we pray for mercy. We pray for our own mercy. We've silenced our tongues. Our voices have not been raised in prophetic rebuke and anger to the things going on in our country. 
Woe is the church that she has not cried out for the lives of all those who are marginalized in our society, particularly those in the black community. Lord, our feet have not stepped out for justice alongside those who have more courage than us. And in our silence, we have been complicit. Would you forgive us, Lord? Forgive us when we individually have sinned against those who suffer the evil of racism. Would you empower us, Lord? We need your strength to step beyond blindness and indifference and fear and instead to step toward those that we even may have sinned against. Lord, these are hard prayers to pray for some of us. Only you can change your heart. And I pray that you do that. But here's the thing I do pray for all of us. Don't leave us the same. Open our eyes, but more importantly, open our hearts to receive. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.